Father in heaven, we thank you for the things that we have learned, the things we've been studying. Lord, we realize that conflict is definitely something that's very real, that's happening amongst us as your people. And Lord, we need real solutions. We pray that you'll give us wisdom beyond our years because we desperately need it. And we especially need your love. We need your love, dear God. We need to understand more faithfully your grace on how to respond to these things as Christ would have us to respond. And so be with us as we talk one with another during this uh, session now. And we thank you for hearing our prayer to this end, for we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to go ahead and invite uh, Brother Waller, Brother Peter uh, to come on forward. And again, we have been privileged to be in ministry for several years and, um, you know, self-supporting work. Didn't always didn't start out like that. Bible workers, canvassers, etc. We have historians on the panel, so got a good amount of knowledge here. And therefore, we're just hoping that God can give us what is needed for you at this time. And so what we wanted to do was open the floor for questions because we're talking about abiding in Christ during conflict and adversity. And we talked about three types of conflict heart conflict, just the battles with self. We talked about the conflict sometimes we have in our homes. And then we talked about conflict we have in ministry. And these are very, very real issues. And so what we want to do is give you an opportunity to go ahead and ask your question. We have Brother JR. Is there another person or is it just yourself? Yeah, the other JR. All right. So JR and JR, they both have their microphones. All right. So raise your hand. JR or JR, we'll get to you with the mic. <laughs> And then we will begin our time together in Q&A. So you can go ahead. Who would like to raise the first question? Okay, so we have a hand right there in the back. This question is related to health ministry, public health ministry, mm -hmm. conflicts on the health committee, local health committee. Okay. Uh, if you don't mind specifying conflict on the local health committee, give us an idea of what you're referring to as to the conflict. What is the conflict? Okay. Some members are very conscientious, love Jesus, and particularly one person wanted to uh, hand out Bible studies in, in a public arena. Like uh, we had a health program at a, communi a community event in order to break down barriers. Right. But in my opinion, as the health leader, this idea was going to uh, exalt barriers. You know, and people are going to be afraid. Uh oh, they're trying to make us Adventists. Correct. You know what I'm saying? How would you deal with this? It was in a it was in a meeting, and the person offered this idea, wanting to offer Bible studies to the participants. How would you how would you approach? How would you counsel on that without increasing the conflict or making them defensive? You know what I mean? I was thinking later I should have said something. I, didn't, I, don't, I don't want to tell you what I said. Okay. okay. Oh, my goodness. We can't do that. Yeah, I mean, right, you know what I'm right. saying? Understood. Understood. Uh, you know, but I, I, I wish I would have said, oh, I wish we could do that. I so wish we could do that. You right. know, something like that. That would have been more appropriate. <laughs> yeah, understood. Um, for myself, what I would say is, number one, if the health and temperance team of that organization Thank or church has said, look, we are not going to initiate ministering into the community on the subject of health 
along with Bible studies. We're going to allow the Bible studies to be a follow-through after. If the committee has made that decision, then, number one, the committee should communicate that to others, you know, to the other people or members who are saying, hey, we're going to start giving out Bible studies. So let's assume that it's just as simple as dealing with the problem by just saying, hey, we decided as a health ministries team that we're not going to initiate with Bible studies. We're just going to deal with health right now, and then we'll come along with Bible studies afterwards. That, if that wasn't clearly communicated, that should have been and going forward should be clearly communicated, and hopefully that is your line of cooperation, phase one. Phase two, the person says no. Councils on Diets and Foods, page 75, says very clearly that we must keep the third angel's message connected with health reform. So let's say they're coming at that angle, right? You can say, okay, this is true. Let's look at two texts of scripture. One is John 5, the other one is Matthew 9. If you look at John 5, 1 through 14, you'll see that Jesus heals a man physically first, literally is gone. Later on, comes back in contact with the man and then addresses his spiritual condition by saying, go and sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. So that's John 5, 1 through 14. So in John 5, Jesus addresses physical first. He allows a period of time to go by, but he does get back to that man and brings in the spiritual. Matthew 9, 1 through 6. Jesus, a man comes to him for physical help. Jesus says, your sins be forgiven you. So he addresses spiritual first. Then there's a dialogue, and then at the conclusion of the dialogue, he says, well, that you guys may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. I say unto you, now get up, take your mat, and start walking. So literally, in John 5, you have physical first, spiritual second. In Matthew 9, you have spiritual first, physical second. What does that tell us? There's no one way to do it. Christ himself demonstrated there's no one way to do it. But what Christ also demonstrated is keep the two together. So what we're not doing is negating councils on diets and foods, page 75. We're not negating that. It's like, no, this is a means to an end. Some people, we just got to start on their physical needs, win their confidence, and then say, hey, there's something deeper God wants to address, which we bring in the third angel. So that you can do it that way. Now, if you give a person that type of balanced education, as long as they're not overzealous, unbalanced, and unsanctified, they should be able to see the clear reasoning of that and give you no problems in the future when it comes to, we would like to not do the Bible studies yet. We would prefer to just go ahead and start just simply ministering to their needs. Do you get that? That would be my recommendation to, you know, the team. And hopefully that'll diffuse any potential conflict because you're showing them, I'm in agreement. We want to address the spiritual, but he who wins souls must be wise. Some people are not ready for it yet. Let's just help them get well first. And then from that, it can trickle into the spiritual. Does that make sense? Okay. Hi. Yes. Wonderful. Um, just one other additional thought. If you are in charge of the health department, when you make the plan, it should be broad enough that it's inclusive of the ministerial component of the plan. So sometimes people may feel um, you're leaving out the ministerial part, therefore we need to insert X. Wow, it's a lot of dust. Um, so if, if the plan is more inclusive from the beginning and you show a whole cycle of evangelism on intentionality yeah, yeah, yeah. in that health outreach component, maybe that issue would not present itself in that manner. 
So here, we have a health outreach plan. This is A, this is step one, step two, step three, step four. This is where we're going to wedge it in here, you know. But it's just to be more thought out and not narrow. Everything's connected together. So you might have to involve personal ministries or whatever. But I would include an overall plan that is inclusive of, of both, both sides. Amen. It's a really good question. We appreciate that. Any other questions? Okay, we got another hand up. Thank you, pastors. Uh, I just have a question. If another church approaches us and asks assistance to revitalize or help their church, is, can you give us a practical, sanctified adv uh, advice? I want to make sure I understand, Brother June. You're saying another church comes to your church, as an example, and says we're asking your church to help our church. You said revitalize, like revival? Okay, like to do a revival or... Yeah, this is another SDA church. So SDA church coming to an SDA church saying, hey, can you help us? All right? What do you guys think? <laughs> Communicate well with the leadership. Um, be transparent and um, have an open dialogue. Oftentimes in ministry, what causes a lot of issues is miscommunication. Yep. So... Uh, Cross the T's and dot the I's and really be detailed in your communication. Uh, be transparent. And step by step, I think that would be a key to making it go forward. And also, of course, the first thing is to pray with the leadership of the other church and to establish a, um, a relationship with the other church leadership. So those are what I think in my 16 years of ministry now, 16 yep. years of ministry that I could think of in yep. working with different churches, yeah. Yep, and one thing I'll add to that, Brother June, is I, with something like that, I like definition of terms. What do you mean by revival? Like, I want to understand what do you mean by that? Because I might have in my own mind, like, God forbid, a church comes to another church, hey, can you help us with a revival? We say, oh, you're a sister church, absolutely. And we never even clarified what a revival really is. And we can find out in the mission effort that we're clashing in our concepts in what constitutes a real revival. So it would be important to understand definition of terms. What do you mean by revival? So that way we can know, is this something that we should help, or maybe this is something that better, it'd be better for us to stay hands off. Um, as far as sister church helping sister church, that's pretty much a no-brainer. Certainly, we should help each other. That, that's not an issue. We're family, so family helps each other. But again, we need to make sure we're on the same page as far as what the mission effort is that we're trying to do. So... Get clarification, what do you mean, by revival, and make sure that it lines up with God's idea of revival and reformation. And then that way you can say, yes, we can participate, no, we can't, have deeper communication, and that way know how to go forward. Okay. Does that help you, Brother June? Does it help? Okay. just want to add a little bit to that. Um... If another church is coming to ask your church for a revival, that means your church must be revived, right? Because it wouldn't make sense for another church to ask your church for revival if your church is not revived. So that needs to be number one. And then number two, if that's going to happen, and I, everyone has very good intentions at times to want to work together and pray together and be in ministry together. Um, but in order for that to truly work, there needs to be a lot more prayer together. Um, and if there's a lot more prayer together and hearts are coming into unison with the master in heaven, then we can sit down and then plan together. 
So you pray together, and then you plan together. And then there is, for at least in my little experience, you know, when I, whenever I want to get something done in church, everybody doesn't join me. It usually does ebbs and flows. So it's an event. Everybody shows up for the first couple of minutes of it. Then it goes down to the core of what, whoever is the real deal of, of the group. In that time frame, when everything goes down to the core, you can't get discouraged because it's in that core there where those fundamentals of what that institution or organization is going to be, it's in that moment in time that that's established. If you don't get discouraged when it comes down to the core, then you can build on that. The establishment of those principles are there. But revival usually doesn't happen in a large, suave, kumbaya, let's go church. It's usually a core group of persons, and then you're working with that core, and you're praying together and fighting together and executing. And by God's grace, it grows, but it grows more organically than it does by um, a forced merger. I would say one more thing, Brother June. Have a clear, not just pre-event, but have a good post-event plan. Um, a lot of churches fail on that. You read that in volume four, uh, page 68, and she talks about how we, we, we work so hard and we work so vehemently to, to get the thing organized and to get the people in, but then we don't have a plan. At what, what should we do now that they're here? So there's no post-event plan. So that's something I would definitely say to a lot of churches. Have a clear pre-plan, the active plan, and the post-plan. What are we going to do once the purpose of the revival is accomplished? Once it's accomplished, what are our steps now? So post-planning, a lot of churches don't do that. A lot. But by God's grace, make, a, make yourselves different in that. Try to have a good post-event plan as well. So I had a, a question about um, academies, especially our Adventist academies. Um, you know, I'm a graduate from the, uh, one of the schools here in Southern California. And I'm just trying to figure out, you know, how do we, um, how do we create change in our academies where we wanted to have closer to the blueprint? Um, right now, the way that this is happening is we, we were able to meet the new, uh, we were able to have a, you know, talk with the, the administration. And we're coming, from, me and my friend and I are coming from the alumni association side. So we want to be able to boost the alumni. And we don't really know, like, how do we, how do we create influence in a way where it's you know tactful, um, and do it in a way where it's like we're able to work together in some certain type of you know strategic plan? Well, I believe the first step is to get to know the administrators, uh, the principal, the vice principal, the chairman of the board of the school board, and to uh, share your vision with them and uh, pray with them and see if your vision is in line with their vision and um, work with them as best as possible. So if they're on board, then there's something to move forward to. If they're not on board, um, just demonstrate that you have their best interests in mind and continue to have a friendship with them and pray that God moves the heart. I'm starting to learn not to write people off, but to pray for them Amen. in a very practical way. So um, that would be my advice. For sure. Read, uh, when you get a chance, go over Great Controversy, page 69 and 70. There are some excellent principles in there of the Waldensians and, and how they went about ministry in the school. Now, let's, let's back up a little bit. 
When Jesus came to this earth, because we ought to work as he worked, right? When Jesus came to this earth, he gave the Pharisees a shot. He gave them a chance. He, he came to them and was like, look, you know, this is, this is the heritage God has given to us, and we are to exercise it accordingly. And of course, they failed on it largely and, and so on. And therefore, Jesus had to still keep things going. In like manner, I am in full agreement. Do your best to work with the brethren. You know what I'm saying? To try to see, like, hey, guys, let, this is what God wants us to do with the school. How can we do it? What, let's talk about some ways we think we can get that done. Um, so that is definitely phase one. Then if you're in a situation where there may be some degree of opposition or, again, conflict, you know, this is where those lessons from the Waldensians are very, very helpful, very, very practical. Also, write down third selected messages, page 233. And... Uh, that was also really good. I want to read this little statement here. It says, the Waldensians entered the schools of the world as students. Now, granted, this was schools of the world. But in truth, a lot of times, even our schools can be like the schools of the world. It's just that we got a religious name. Romans 9 and verse 6 says, not all who say they are Israel are Israel. We have to accept the fact not everything we say is Seventh-day Adventist is really Seventh-day Adventist. So it's this, there are principles here that can apply. The Waldensians entered the schools of the world as students. Uh, they made no pretensions. Apparently, they paid no attention to anyone, but they lived out what they believed. They never sacrificed principle, and their principles soon became known. This was different from anything the other students had seen, and they began to ask themselves, what does all this mean? Your peculiar faithfulness will prompt questions. Your peculiar faithfulness will prompt questions. Then it says, why cannot these men be induced to swerve from their principles? While they were considering this, they heard them praying in their rooms, not to the Virgin Mary, but to the Savior, whom they addressed as the only mediator between God and man. The worldly students were encouraged to make inquiries, and as the simple story of the truth, as it is in Jesus, was told, their minds grasped it. So, you know, there are ways that you can function that even if in the school the team is not on board, you know, that you can still have, again, something Brother Waller mentioned, that smaller core team, um, I've seen this at Andrews University. They have the group. I forget their name. Do you Revive. remember? Revive. You know, the, the Revive group at Andrews is a, is a case in point. You know, group of guys and girls who said, look, we believe the truth as it is in Jesus. We believe that Christ is coming soon. We're holding to our original heritage of our message. And they hold events at Andrews. Um, I've spoken there. Peter, have you spoken there? Yeah, Peter spoke there. You've been there for that one? Um, it, it's an it's a awesome thing. It's like a lot of people come out. And they encourage, they teach, they instruct, they have a, a, a support group in the school, and everybody holds to the lines of the truth as it is in Jesus. So there's a lot you can do, if not in collective function between leadership laity, certainly through a core group of students and what have you that says, we really believe in this, we seek God for wisdom, we're not going to war. The goal is not to turn over tables in the school and say all you professors are a bunch of apostates, etc., you know, but it's to try to do what we can quietly and work our ministry and help as many people come to know Jesus as possible. So that's another option you can do. Okay. Um, it's kind of been my experience as far as... I'll start with when I was a student at one of our colleges. Um, we started a small Bible study group, and that group started out with five people. It ended up being that we would have Bible studies on Thursday night, and 70 people would show up on Thursday night, and 50 people would show up on Saturday night. Um, and it started just with a group of five. 
Um, that's me as a student in an institution trying to bring revival to that institution. Uh, there's been another scenario where I have been a staff, a quasi-staff at a university, and I started a Bible study on the campus, and from that Bible study, we end up launching and started our missionary training school. Um, the approach should be a non-threatening approach. Like, why is it serving helmets as a dove? Is there a way that the alumni can have dinners for the young people? Right? So, hey, come over and eat. What always worked for me at college, hey, come over to my house and eat because everybody's hungry. You know, they got ramen in their fridge. They don't know what to eat. You know what I'm saying? So you have situations where people are coming over to eat, they're fellowshipping, and in that manner, it's not threatening to the university, it's not threatening to the students, it's not threatening to anybody. It's a matter of mingling. Ministry of Healing, page 143. And in that mingling together in that fellowship, now there are born these relationships, and now we can say, hey, let's go do ministry together. Let's go to a mission trip together. Let's organize, but it's based off these relationships that are developed in a very pragmatic, realistic, loving manner. Because it's, it's very hard to try to change an institution because you have to go through all these policies or whatnot, but it's easier to deal with relationships. And so that, because to me, that's the question. Yeah. When we're saying do a revival work in an institution, let's use the school, does that mean we're trying to get them to change the curriculum, change the whole way their policies are structured? Is that what we're trying to change? When we say revive the institution, or are we saying bring revival to the hearts of the people in the institution? You, you, you know, you got to know which, which, which battle are you trying to fight? Because there are some people who are saying, we want to see the entire institution change. And, and mind you, there's nothing wrong with the desire to change an institution. Mm -hmm. The issue is, are you trying to change the fruit before you're trying to change the root? Mm -hmm. If you're trying to change the fruit, you're fighting an uphill battle. It doesn't even work in the garden. You go cut a piece of fruit off, I, we got eggplant and kiwi and we got apple trees. You go pick the fruit off the tree, the fruit's still going to come back. What you want to do is you got to attack the root. And that root is the heart of the people. I'll give you a true story, true story. I was invited to do an evangelistic meeting in a particular church. I won't say the church or the place. Got a phone call from a pastor telling me that, hey, I understand that you don't like drums in the church, yada, yada, but we're going to have drums because we don't want any division in our church, this and that. Now, I could have decided, you know what? I'm not going to deal with this. I'm out. This is present truth. I don't play that. <laughs> right? I could have did that, but I said, you know what? God's sending me there. First three messages, pure evangelistic meeting. By the fourth message, they themselves stopped the drums. I never made a word about the drums. The heart of the people, the essence of the message, what was transpiring, they said, this doesn't match what the man's preaching. So when I did talk about it later, it wasn't a big deal. It wasn't as bad. Now, there are places where truly is <laughs> uh, a whole other story. But in that church, it worked in such a manner where I was able to go into that church. That church loved the message. You can't tell me... The organization doesn't love the message. That's a lie. You go for the heart. You talk to the people. You love people. It's about people. It's about people. Somebody has a false doctrine in your church. First thing you do, you're anti-Trinitarian. You're not going to have fellowship with me. You can't eat at our house. You're an apostate. Is that what you do? Come over to my house. Let's have dinner.
Tell me about your husband. Tell me about your wife. Tell me about your kids. Let's go for a walk. A lot of times these big issues are kind of broken down on a one-on-one level. But when we try to attack the fruit of a situation without going to the root, you're gonna, it's like an uphill battle. Yeah, no. Anyway, I'm talking too much. I have a question um, in regards to mostly discouragement in the ministry. I know you gentlemen don't have the answers. Um, but what do you do in a church where they were once on fire and maybe wanted a certain ministry to happen? And then there's been a change in the attitude towards the ministry. And um, some have discouraged you, time to, it's time to quit. You know, you get advice like, don't kick against the goats. This is not what is welcomed anymore. Um, so there have been advice from different angles, maybe move the ministry from that church, go public. I just wanted to get, because there have been fasting and prayer, but I just wanted to get you, what you would suggest when you're dealing, number one, with discouragement, but also with a church that's possibly not really welcoming a ministry that it used to. Okay, because I have a, a, I don't know the details of your situation, so I'm not really talking to your situation. On two fronts, one, um, our missionary training school at one point was completely and totally put on a blacklist, meaning that we could not go to any church, raise any money, do anything, because someone had lied on our ministry. They lied on our ministry, and when they lied on our ministry, we lost, I don't know, we were, we were bringing in monthly almost $7,000 from those particular relationships, $7,000 a month just disappeared. Now, that's a lot of money for a little ministry. And so at that point, I could have done one or two things. We out. And I could have been, this conference is an apostasy. You know what we did? We put our head down. We kept doing our work. We don't work for the conference. We don't work for the church. I work for Jesus. I put my head down. Hey, team, let's go knock on doors. We're going to still do the work, regardless of how they see us. Now we invited back in. We're not on a blacklist anymore. They love us. They see the truth about what really transpired versus what was first stated. But the issue is, am I doing what I'm called to do? Not what everybody accepts me to do or perceives me that I should be doing. What did Jesus tell me to do? And if I'm doing what Jesus tells me to do, at the end of the day, he's going to be glorified. All things are going to be in their proper place in their proper time. But we had to go through a time where we were pretty much like we couldn't do, as far as working with them, the work. But, and there's more than one story like that. I have another story where somebody thought I was shepherd's rod. They literally thought my wife and I were shepherd's rod. And they cut us off. They cut us off. So we went back home. And at that time, we had, two, we had 181 Bible study contacts in the community. So, and we were working for that church. They cut us off. So I'm like, we go back home, and I'm like, sweetie, and I had two friends. We were like, what are we going to do? Well, we're going forward in faith. Money or no money. There's 181 souls here. So we worked, and we prayed, and we worked, and we prayed. We got to the point where we had to have an evangelistic meeting. It was all these contacts. So I had to go back to the church. We sit before the church. It was like a, a tribunal. And I'm sitting there answering questions. And I remember it. I'll, I'll, and I'm not going to say they're not Freemasons and stuff and Jesuits in the church. There was a Freemason that stood up in the church. His ring was like that big. And he stood up in the church, and he was just talking bad about us. And I'm sitting there. I'm just having to take it. I'm not responding. 
and the pastor stood up and defended us. We ended up doing the meeting there. Do you know at that church, when we had the evangelistic meeting the first day, the context came, the church members didn't. Context came, church members didn't. I'm just like, what in the world? What, what in the world? I don't even understand this. Then when we kept preaching and preaching, church members start coming. They start, oh, you're preaching what we believe. I was like, yeah, the whole time. <laughs> when it was over, they end up giving us all the back pay that they didn't pay us. They end up throwing us a shower for our wedding because my wife and I weren't married yet. And we went away from that thing. I just went away from that thing knowing, you know what? You do what God tells you to do, whether they like you or not. Of course, you have to be gracious and loving and whatever, but just, just do what you're supposed to do. Whatever God told you to do, don't get caught up in how you're being perceived per se, if, unless, you're, you know, unless you're out of line and you're, what's the three things? You're overzealous and Undone. unbalanced and, unsanctified. and unsanctified. If that's your problem, then that's a different issue. Yep. But if you are doing what God tells you to do, keep it moving. Keep it moving. I mean, I've been put in awkward positions before, but pretty much nothing like this. And I had to go to a church, and I knew it was fairly liberal, you know, as far as, they, I mean, they had the drums, they had all of that. And when I started to preach, now the thing is, the sermon was already made, the sermon was already prepared. And sometimes you are going to run into this, especially for those of you who preach God's word. You are going to say something at a church that more than likely that church is doing something that the word of God condemns. And no matter how nice you say it, no matter how cordial you are, no matter just how flowery you present it, if some people are against it, they're just against it. Because what we're doing right now is we're sharing a lot of great stories of how people's eyes got open and they came to the light, they saw and they said, oh, we were wrong, and, da, da, da. and that's true. But there are some people that are vehemently against this truth, this message. And no matter how nice you put it, no matter how sweet you present it, no matter, no matter what, they're just like, I'm against this, and I'm going to fight it. So I'm at a church. And my family was there, and I'm presenting. And as I'm presenting, uh, I made a point that it obviously struck the chord of the pastor of that church. And I could see, I'm on the pulpit, but he's in the back. And I could see him, when I made a certain point, he sticks his hands out like this towards me. And he has this look on his face like, like that. <laughs> so when I saw that, I was like... I'm preaching, but I'm really thinking. I don't even know how I did that. Like, I'm, I'm actually still giving the message, but I'm processing, why did he stick his hand out like that? So my natural first thought inclination was, he's saying, exactly. <laughs> Literally, that's, that's what I thought he was doing. That's honestly what I thought he was doing. Because... <laughs> I'm just thinking, surely he's not, like, mad at me, you know? So I'm thinking, he's like, exactly. And so I was just like, yeah. So praise the Lord. And, da, da, da. and I'm, so I'm preaching the word again. And then I could clearly see he was not happy. He's pacing back and forth. He's going to the guy who invited me, the, the men's ministry leader, and he's going like this to him. And, and I'm just like, 
he's mad. <laughs> and so I'm preaching the message, and I see the pastor's very upset. My wife and children are in the back row where the pastor is. So my wife immediately tells the children, start praying for your father. Because we knew something's about to happen. So I see him go to the praise team. And he goes to the praise team and says, and he's telling them to go. So I'm like, uh-oh, he's going to send them up right while I'm preaching. And so in my mind, I'm like, I don't know what to do. I am honest. I'm like, Father, I mean, if we were going street, I would know exactly what to do. But that's not an option, right? So in, in a spiritual sense, I don't know what to do right now. Lord, what do I do? This man is upset. And he's about to send these guys behind me to shut me down. So I watch them. I'm preaching, and I could see them at the peripheral, walking this way, getting ready to go behind and next thing you know, I hear the door, choo -choo -choo, doom, 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 doom. and like soldiers, they just walk behind me, and they stand behind me like this while I'm preaching, and uh, there's probably about four of them, and then the other guy goes to the drum set, and he lifts up his sticks, ready to hit the drums. They are ready to shut me down. So I'm like, Lord, I'm scared. Father, I don't know what to do. And see, y'all be getting tricked by these eyebrows. I am not as tough as these things make me look. I am a very fearful man. I don't like fighting and all that other stuff. I mean, I know how to stand when I have to, but it's really like, oh man, only if I have to. So when they did that, my heart's racing. And I'm like, Father, I don't know what to do. I need your help. I cried out to God. This is while I'm preaching. And so when I preached and I got to a point that I went to the congregation, I said, give me a moment. And then I turned around and I addressed the guys behind me. And I said, are you standing behind me to be an indirect message to me that I need to stop preaching? And I asked them that question. And they looked at each other. Yes. And I don't know where this came from except heaven. <laughs> I could have been like, you stiff-necked Israelites, whoosh, you know, just throw the table. I could have done that, I'm sure. There'd probably be some present truth group out there that would have said, hey, man, that's right, beat him up. But what I did was I just simply said, I'm not finished. I said, I am not finished. And I think it is disrespectful that you are coming behind me to stand and interrupt what God is doing right now. And I cannot continue preaching while you are standing behind me because it's a distraction. So either I sit down or you sit down, but I will not continue this message while you're standing behind me. They looked at each other and went, doo -doo 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 -doo, and they all walked off. They walked off, the crowd started saying, yes, yes, that's right. I said, nope, don't do that. And I began to tell them, don't do that. This is not what God wants. We are not here to fight, we're here to worship. Had another prayer. And I finished the message. I never had an experience like that in my life. That was all God. But it didn't stop there. Because that's on the camera. You can actually see that. It's a video called Show Thyself a Man. And it's on YouTube. You can actually see me preaching. See the guys walk behind me and me going, Hey, did you guys it? That's actually on YouTube. It has a lot of hits. That's <laughs> a whole lot of hits. <laughs> but here's what happened. When I got off the pulpit, 
I remember I'm at the door shaking everybody's hands. And that pastor, he, I mean, he's, I mean, he's walking with aggression in his body language. And he's walking towards me. And I see him coming, and my heart starts racing again. And he comes towards me, and he says, I want to see you in my office. And he sticks his finger in my face. Now, I, I studied three disciplines of martial arts. In my past. I don't do it now. And I was trained very thoroughly on what to do to a man's finger if he sticks it in your face. And when he stuck his finger in my face, I thought to myself, you know, my natural reaction would be like, hey, man, what are you doing? You know, whatever. But when he stuck his hand in my face, I remember smiling at him. I said, I'll be right there, Pastor. And then he said, I expect to see you there. And he walked back to his office. And I remember I watched him walking away, and I began to cry. Because I was just like, Lord, this is wrong. This is really wrong, what he's doing. And, you know, finished shaking everybody's hands, went in to meet with the pastor and the elders, and he's just like, how dare you? How dare you say that? And I just said, Pastor, but what did I do that was wrong? You planned this. I said, I didn't plan anything. I said, the sermon was already done. I didn't even know how your church worshiped. This is my first time here. And through reasoning, because he was like, you are not speaking in the afternoon. Talking softly back to him while he was yelling at me. And that took a lot. And uh, I remember responding back and just so on and so forth. And do you know that the Lord squashed that whole thing and he allowed me to preach later that afternoon, the following morning, and everything else. He actually allowed me to go ahead. He could have stopped it. He was a pastor. He could have stopped it. Sometimes you will be tested in ministry. I mean, you, you are going to be tested. And I have, I succeeded that test, and this, this is the problem. You can pass that test, but you got to remember another test is coming later on. You know? So I can definitely say that that test was totally passed with flying colors. But at the same time, I can see times after that where I got tested again and I failed. And this is why the constant abiding in Christ. You know, I mean, like, this thing is so serious because the victory you had yesterday does not predict that you're going to have the victory tomorrow unless you comply with the Lord and stay in that experience that caused you to respond kindly the first time. You got to stay in that experience rather than saying, whew, God gave me victory. That was powerful. Praise the Lord. And now you let your devotions die down. You let, you, you know, you, you start weakening your commitments because you had this incredible deep spiritual experience and that's why i don't take away from anybody uh for this weekend but for me the the samson message friday night that thing had a lot of points in there that i said man that's me man that's me okay all right it's like it helped me understand some things in this controversy a little bit better where i could look at it personally and say i see okay and it's just so important that you got to stay in the experience because I'm telling y'all right now, as you do your institutions, as you do all these things, you are going to run into conflict. And there are going to be things that God is going to allow to happen for the purpose of purifying yours and my character. And these are going to be those moments that we're going to have to be super prayerful, very consecrated, consider, think, slow to speak, quick to listen. All of those principles are going to have to kick in 
so that we don't allow ourselves to do something that could potentially be irreversible, you know? So these are, these are I'm glad for our Q&A session, I'm glad that we're talking about real things in church relations and all these other points and what have you. I'm sure there's a lot more we could do, but I'm just glad that we could have this little discussion. Brother Peter, were you gonna say something as well? Go ahead. God sometimes permits years of famine and lawyers in ministry to teach us faith. Yeah. Hmm. In the midst of hopelessness, we could develop hope. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I can remember back in the year 2001, 2002, a group of young people in Los Angeles, <laughs> and then a group of people in Loma Linda decided and were interested in the Adventist message. And when they started out, a lot of things were said about them. For a bunch of college kids and grad school kids, it was quite overwhelming because all we wanted to do was, you know, declare the three angels' message. And we had this grand idea to do a revival meeting, just a bunch of young people with no money. And we invited a then unknown ex-rapper who's now on 3ABN in a beat-up minivan, living day to day, and he did a powerful meeting, and the church was very angry. And in fact, the youth uh, department decided not to pay for anything, so we were left with the bill. So we just maxed out our credit cards. <laughs> and then the parents saw a change in the young people, like us young people seeing how drastically we gave up doing these things and started to commit all into the Adventist message. And the parents paid the bill for us. And you know, the, the ex-rapper, you probably could connect the dots, the ex-rapper pastor was, his name was drugged to the mud. You know, the youth pastor stared him down. The other youth pastor shut down one of his meetings so that we planned to have him present for Sabbath school and they, they pulled the plug on him. Both of those youth pastors are out of the ministry now. God has a way of making things right. And the people that resisted so much now saw the fruit of, oh, wait a minute, these guys are working with these people. Now they're on 3ABN. There must be something going on. They must be doing something right. And so it happened throughout the years. And then we started having this camp meeting in Camp Cedar Falls. Mind you, we're just college and University kids, we decided to have our own 501c3, just do the work. Because so, we wanted to just do the work. We just wanted to prepare the minds and hearts for Jesus to come. And then 300 people showed up to that camp meeting just by, you know, just passing out flyers, just by grit. If I want to talk to the millennial ministry people, you need to learn grit. Amen. Persistence. Because nowadays we get everything through smartphone. Back in my day, we had to research, we had to open up the concordance, we didn't have eSword. You know those days, yeah? Uh -huh. And so because we have things in convenience, we give up too easily. God wants us to develop patience. Here are the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commands of God and the faith of Jesus. So apparent failure could be a blessing. And so we persistently continue to do the work. Then the group in Loma Linda, would mushroom into what we have called Advent Hope Today that averages 600 people with powerful speakers every Sabbath. 
And then in 2006, the Los Angeles group from actually your church and the Avon Hope group decided to combine forces and say, let's start a youth conference. And that's how SWYC started. These things didn't happen overnight. And so these painful experiences teaches us, although they're painful, humility, getting on your knees, and seeing how great God is to open up the Red Sea. And so if you're going through opposition right now, if you're going through a situation where it's being shut down, number one, the temptation is, oh, they're apostate, you know, they don't know much, we know the three angels' messages, pastor doesn't know Bible and spirit prophecy, don't do that. Pray for them. Be diplomatic. God loves them. We're all broken people. Oftentimes when we're in present truth, we think, oh, we got it right, and then everyone else is like, you know, they need to get right, but God can humble us really quickly. Amen. And so when we realize we're broken people and these things are meant for our blessing, we can still continue pressing through. So that's just my story, my war story. Amen. I think we have a question over here. Do you have a question over there, too? Oh, we'll take this leader over here, and then we'll go to that one. Next. Uh, do you think that women's ordination is important enough issue, doctrine, whatever you want to call it, to be worthwhile dividing the church over? No. Amen. Amen. All right. So the church has one foundation. What's that one foundation? The only thing to divide the church over is over Jesus. If you're teaching Jesus is not God, then we, we divide the church over that. And I'm going to be as diplomatic as I can. I have a garden. Here we go. Yes, this helps. So I have a garden. In my garden, before I knew anything about a garden, I uh, saw everything on YouTube. So I would take my YouTube video and I'll go outside and I will plant my garden based on YouTube videos. I never saw so many different bugs until I planted the garden. Each plant seems to have a different bug. I hope you're getting my illustration because I may not explain it. The conservative plant has a special bug that eats it. The liberal plant has a special bug that eats it. Depends what bug you are, I mean, what plant you are. There are distractions for every kind. Here's a simple question. Can women do ministry, yes or no? Has God ordained women to do ministry, yes or no? What we're arguing over right now is, can she be an elder? How about go do ministry? Who's arguing about titles? Why are you arguing about a title? Is everybody going about doing the work? God called me to work. I've never been ordained to be a pastor by anybody. I'm not waiting for somebody to dictate to me to go do God's work. We're arguing about titles. We're not arguing about the work. Sister White even says, I'll say this. Sister White says that women should be paid from the time that do ministry. Did you know that? Did you know that? Yeah, so we're arguing about a title. Forget the titles. Everybody should just dismiss the title. Let's go do a work. But isn't there a, a difference in the amount that they're paid if they're ordained or not ordained? What? And should people get this equal pay for equal work? Well, it sounds to me, and again, I, I, I don't want to get too much into the politics of that, right? So let's just answer this question. Um, the, I'm going to say it this way. 
the temperature of society is dictating the arguments of the church. Instead of the church being, what's it, the thermometer, thermostat, which one is it? Thermostat. Thermostat. Instead of the church being the thermostat for the world, we are mimicking the arguments of the world in the church. So all, all I'm saying is, let's not get distracted. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. Christ is in the most holy place. He's about to try to finish your work. All men and women should be on board and being active in ministry to carry out God's work. And if you're in the place that God calls you to be, he will take care of you financially. Amen. I think let's try to take as more questions as possible. We'll go on that side really quick. How do you resolve the conflict with, we're here at SWIC, you've got a congregation of, or a group of older and younger, but there's, there's a split sometimes between the young adults, the youth, and, you know, the more seasoned Adventists. How do we kind of bridge that gap of that conflict that we have between those two age groups? I think the message unites us. The first, second, and third angel's message. I mean, you look at SWYC, you look at Army Bible Camp, you look at GYC, you look at all these ASI, you look at all all these gatherings, and you have people from every nationality under the sun here that oftentimes outside of these walls do not talk to each other. But this message has united us in sweet fellowship. And so I think when we declare the third angel's message in a way where it fills the need of the heart, which is Jesus, I think that will unite the young adults and the adults. Because I know one thing about young adults and adults, we all struggle with pain. We all have problems. And if we preach the message that fills that need to show that Jesus is the solution to all our problems, I believe that could unify us very quickly. Amen. Amen. Um, what I would say is that Ministry of Healing 149 says every church should be a training school. If we took our youth, young adults, more seasoned, if we brought us all together and allowed the church to function like a training school, that we could impart education and show how this theoretical gospel can become practical in your life as a youth, in your life as a young adult, in your life as a more seasoned elder uh, or what have you. If we did that, you would find that the needs would be met. So again, uh, in total agreement, what Brother Peter has said, you know, the message does unite us. That's why God gave it. He, he knew. He, he put it in there. It was intentional. And if we allow ourselves to allow our church to become a training school where there's a lot more teaching than preaching, a lot more education um, and, and application, you know, again, how does a young person, and you, you know, you make up the number on that if you're talking preteen or teen or what have you, but how does that young person take these three massive theories, first, second, third angel, and how does it become practical to them? Then you take the young adults, you know, your, your 
17 to 20 plus or whatever, same thing. How do we make, take this and make it practical to them in their circumstances? Because everybody's in different phases of circumstances. You know, the 10-year-old the, the does not have the problem that the 46-year-old has. I can guarantee you that. So, you know, it's like we, we allow that truth to be brought to the individual in such a way that they're all still learning through angel, but they're all learning it applicable to their circumstance where they can appreciate it at their sphere of understanding. If we were to do more of that kind of work, we would be more united. Gaps would be bridged. And there would be a greater unity that would come amongst God's people. I think our big issue is we don't often have a practical gospel. It's just this incredible theory of concepts and ideas and all this other stuff. But I don't know how to leave here and live this. You know, how do I live this? And a gospel that's not practical is a worthless gospel. Y'all heard me say that from the first invite to SWIC many years ago till now. And that is a fact. The gospel must become practical, practicable. I got to be able to experience this thing, walk in it. And as I learn how to do that, it will mean more to me. Because now it's not just some weird theory that we believe as a creed, as a movement. But it's, it's personal now. And so I believe that, that that's a major component of how these groups can come together through that message as it's brought to us in a practical way. Yeah, so I'm going to piggyback off of that. So the nucleus of the church are the families. So if the families have the distinction in ages in the home, in other words, so dad is over here, he does the work. Children over here, they do, they're doing their own thing. And mama's over So there's already separation in the home. So what happens is that separation that's in the home, we just bring it into the church. And it's just reflected over and over and over again in that regard. But when we're at home and I'm singing songs with my daughter from the hymn book and things like that, when she comes to church, it's not a strange thing for her to be engaged in worship in this manner because we do it at home. The absence of the home unit is reflected in how disoriented and, dis and separated the church often becomes. So we try to specialize for youth and we're specializing for this group. And there's nothing wrong with that from time to time. But we're designed as a unit. We're designed as families. We're supposed to be doing stuff together as a family. And that is often foreign. So to, to bridge the gap between these age groups it would really have to be a, a change of how we do things at home. Mm -hmm. Amen. And do you know that God is so good that he actually told us what to do? He actually gave like specific instructions. Education, page 250. It says, it was God's plan for the family to be associated in four things. Work, worship, study, recreation. I mean, tell me God's not good. I mean, he literally said, I'm going to actually instruct you on what should be made up of your family communion. That if you have a family communion of work, study, worship, recreation. Education, page 250. If you do those four things as a family, man, that thing affords for a happy family. And then from that, those happy families are coming to the church, as mentioned by Brother Waller, we're duplicating this on a larger level. And notice, it brings all the groups together. It brings the older and the middle and the young. It brings everybody together. And so it makes all the sense in the world to follow that principle. So I'm just saying that God has been so wonderfully faithful to us. He actually says, I'm not going to even leave you to guess it. I'm going to tell you, this is the things y'all should be doing. First as a family, 
and then coming together as a body in Christ. Which is the Elijah message, right? Yep. Turn the hearts of the children Amen. to the parents and so forth and so on. So, uh, What do you do when the church doesn't seem to do anything to encourage people to find a, the right ministry? And we do not get, uh, we don't agree on anything. And we just continue to be the same old thing, discouraging others. So I guess there's no um, encouragement to start ministries in the church and things like that. And it's just same thing, kind of like a social club. Every mm -hmm. <laughs> well, one of the things, every time I drive to church, one of the prayers I pray is help me to be a blessing. And if I'm the blessing, um, the work starts with me first. You know, the song that we used to sing when we were, when we were younger, or I was younger, whatever. It only takes a spark to get the fire going. It starts with me. Um, what am I doing? I, I cannot look at what everybody else is doing or I'm out to church. I'm telling you. I got to look at what am I, what am I doing? What am I doing? Lord, how is, how is my relationship with me and you? What can I do with what I have in my hand? And if you start there, that's where you begin. Don't start looking around with everybody else. Start there. And have a revival there. In your home first. From your home, invite people into your home. And then there's that life that begins to develop. It has happened everywhere I have gone. Drop me off somewhere, we start in a Bible study. Yep. Drop me off anywhere, there's going to be some type of revival. I'm not going to be over here dead. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be a dead Christian. No desire. So it starts with me. My decision. Stop. We need to quit trying to fix everything at the top and start right here right there and if we do that as a people individually it will swell into the loud cry if you remember hebrews 10 it says in verse 24 or 23 let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering for he is faithful that promise and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works god actually wants us to provoke each other to love and to good works. Then it says, verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. So God has told us what to do. Number one, he says, don't forsake, you know, assembling yourselves. But he says, but when you assemble, listen, don't just be there and, and notice everything that's wrong. Try to create or do some things that are right. And he says, Number one, provoke each other to love and to good works. You can literally flesh that out and start a ministry from that. You see, it's one thing if they don't encourage you to ministry. It's another thing if they prohibit you from starting one. You get that difference? Mm -hmm. So if they're not encouraging me to do a ministry, that's all right. I've already got my encouragement. It came from Jesus himself. Yeah. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start something in the church. So Brother Wilder said it. Uh, we got a bunch of young people together. I said, man, these young people are doing nothing. So we said, look, let's go ahead and let's have a Bible study at so-and-so's house. And we brought a whole bunch of young people to the house. And we started having Bible studies Sabbath afternoon. Um, and we always allow them to ask any question they want. I don't know what it is about young people, but they love asking questions. And they love the idea that you're willing to hear them out no matter what. Not, uh, we tell them, ask whatever you want. Why this? Why that? And boy, if you can give a Bible answer, that is very impressive to a young yes. mind. They're like, hold up. So the Bible actually says that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you show them that, 
and then you have fellowship and eat and all these things, eat. and it turns into a ministry. <laughs> yeah, serious. People love food. So if they're not encouraging you to start a ministry, that's okay. As long as they're not prohibiting you, you go ahead and start something. And you go ahead and see, how can I exhort? How can I build up? What can I do? You can start a book club. You can actually say, hey, we're all going to go ahead and read this book. I mean, there's a lot of ways that you can get something started that literally can almost spread just like a nice, beautiful fire. All right? All right. Okay. Amen. Thank you. We'll go you, and then I think Jerry. Ever since I left uh, Uchi Pines Institute, the Lord has laid it on my heart to uh, really be convicted about the sanitarium work. Mm -hmm. And uh, hearing you speak, Brother Lemon, back in 2015 about how SoCal needs one, mm -hmm. um, it just kind of revitalized the flame in me. And several people that I talked to and interacted with, including this young lady right here, had a dream about the same thing even before I was with her. So what would be some of the counsel that you would have and how to go about starting this? Because I realize we have to be fire starters, but we, wanna, we don't want to be presumptuous, in other words, too. We want to follow God and walk with God exactly. So anything that you could add? What kind of workers should be in a sanitarium? What would you call them? I would agree, medical missionaries. So... The master medical missionary we know is Jesus. One of the first things I would recommend is before launching to the Institute, because we've seen this happen already. People get zealous. People say, hey, let's get something started. They get something started and they go for a period of time. And then something happens that kind of dissolves the movement that was going forward. But we're not saying that under every circumstance that won't happen, but there are definitely blocks that we can put up to avoid it better. So one of the first things is, is understand what medical missionary work is. Because if I talk with somebody, when they come to me and say, hey, Brother Lemon, are you present truth? You know, before I used to be like, yeah, I'm present truth. You know, like, yeah, yeah. You know, now I'm like, what do you mean by present truth? You know, and, and I'm very quick on asking that. In like manner, man, we need to get a blueprint school started. What do you mean by a blueprint school? In like manner, we need to get a sanitarium started. What's your understanding of a sanitarium? You know, and... After we understand what the sanitarium is, then what is the qualifications for a sanitarium worker? What does God really want? We've seen so many sanitariums get started and go down. I think one of the saddest things that I remember being at the Blue House in Harrisville was when we walked through this desolate mansion that was on the property, and they had a box filled with books. One of the boxes, I mean, this is, this is just sad. When you go inside of one of those boxes, you had a directory of several sanitariums and schools and all these things that was throughout the U.S. Mm. And when you look at how many was in existence and you compare it to how many are in existence, it's enough to make you cry. It's probably enough to make the angels cry. Mm -hmm. And so sooner or later, the curse causes shall not come. You got to ask yourself, mm -hmm. why did that happen? Well, why so many sanitariums are just gone like what happened and how do we make sure that we don't repeat that and often it's because while money while activity and a lot of other things was happening god did not have the one thing he wanted most and that was the people's hearts and so the first phase is understanding what really is sanitarium work what are some books that can help us with that number one you could pick up councils on health has a nice whole section there just on the sanitarium what it's all about 
If you want to understand medical missionary work, I cannot recommend a better book than Ministry of Healing. Um, you know, as you understand what the sanitarium is, what Ministry of Healing is, then you understand, okay, Lord, what is it that's in my heart that would prohibit me from being an instrument in your hand to be a faithful sanitarium worker? God is not afraid to pour out money to us. He's not afraid to give us everything we need. He just doesn't want a repeat of the bad side of history. And I think sometimes we're not paying enough attention to what caused the demise of what was in existence before and how can we learn from that history. That's what the whole Bible's about, Romans 15, 4. We learn from the things that happened in the past. So it's going to require a lot of education. It's going to require a lot of prayer. Most importantly, it's going to require a lot of heart searching. But it's also going to require a team. That's another big mistake. It, this, seriously, this is the trap. One family starts up a big ministry, and next thing you know, if we're not careful, we fall into some of those traps we talked about earlier. You start thinking, I got to do it or else it won't happen, or whatever else, and da da da. And this thing becomes a formula for stress, failure, overwhelmed, and, and all these other things. You need to have a team. That's what God wants you to have. Everything we see in our sanitarium work in the blueprint in the times past, there was a team of people. Yes, it might be two thought leaders that come together, but eventually it, it, it swells into a team. And so, you know, you got to really look back at a lot of those things and let the Lord build it up. Amen. So the first phase is education. All right. What is sanitarium work? What is medical missionary work? What is it that qualifies one to be a worker? Where's my heart in all of this? And then from that, God will lead you to the next steps. That's my input. Hello. Uh, a church that I used to work for, um, they, um, a number of leaders have actually left. And, um, and so there are a number of leaders that are there still with the pastor. And the pastor is slightly older. And uh, the pastor, I guess, and a couple of members have a slightly different way of doing things. And the other leaders uh, want to actually create some change um, that are positive changes um, implementing some of revival and, and, and other things. And, but there seems to be always a conflict uh, from, uh, between the leaders and the pastor. And, uh, and so the other leaders, and one particular individual is trying to promote um, some sort of communication. However, others um, are, not as, are agreeing, but they're not wanting to say anything. Uh, and so it's come to a point when uh, at this time that perhaps the person who's an instigating this is, or initiating, sorry, uh, is wanting to actually leave. Um, so it's, um, there's dialogue that I have with them. And I'm just wondering what would be your recommendation in terms of preventing the, the team to break uh, and just to maintain still and to maybe reconvene and re, I don't know, yeah, share some of the vision. Do you have any thoughts about that? Mm -hmm. uh, just a little bit of clarification. So there's a team, a new leadership team, yes. and then there's a pastor. Yes. And the pastor doesn't want to do what the new leadership wants to do? Is that, is that the issue? Uh, yes. Um, with a couple of members backing the pastor, uh, but yeah. then the, the rest of the team, there's one person who's actually making the voice, ah. but the others are not... Uh, are afraid to, or maybe a little bit shy to make the voice, 
and uh, feel that it's a little bit disrespectful to continue to disagree with the pastor. Uh, so what would be uh, the suggestion in terms of how they can, uh, I don't know, yeah, reshape their vision, I guess? So there seems to be a lot more dynamics to the story than what you're saying. So it makes it a little hard to actually give a direct answer to this scenario. Um, one of the things that I have noticed about God, that God has a, he has a plan, right? He has, let's go to Canaan. And then there's a bunch of hard-headed people who want to do something else. Um, God often steps back and allows the people to do what they want for a time. Uh, it's actually a patient way and a loving way to deal with the situation than trying to force something that people are not necessarily ready for. So the same thing in my house. There are certain things I want done in my house. My wife not, may not be ready for that. Do I push on? If she doesn't do it, am I leaving? You know, that mentality is not conducive to unity. And sometimes we have to examine the motives of what, if we're saying we're doing this for the sake of revival, and these people are not reviving as fast as I want them to do, is there a way that I could reorganize and approach it in a different way to meet the needs of the people that I'm actually dealing with? Uh, I mean, that's just a, a thought. Again, I don't know all the dynamics of what's going on, but I often realize that sometimes us with our great ideas, the people may not be ready for them yet. So we may have to wait. And as we're waiting, there's nothing stopping us on a personal level from meeting up with people and inviting them over to eat. I'm trying to tell you, it's, the food is the secret. <laughs> the food is the secret. But anyway, that's, that's my little thought based on the limited knowledge I have regarding what you're saying. You don't want to encourage a bad behavior, all right? <clears throat> there are ministers that have looked upon the church as if it is their church, okay? Like it's my home. You know, I run this thing, and you guys fall in line or you get out. We don't want to do anything that encourages that mindset because there comes a point that conduct permitted is conduct taught. You understand that? So it is important that the leaders help educate the pastor if necessary to say, listen, if what we're trying to do is according to the word, what you're trying to do is not according to the word. Okay, well then that becomes an educational point. To say, all right, well let's all look at the word. Can we look at the word and can we see what the word says? And uh, hopefully, if you got a pastor that is submissive to the word of God, then maybe that's the simplicity of it. Maybe it's just leaders, you, you put what you got to get together from the word, pastor, you do the same, let's come together and let's study it. All right, let's assume you got a pastor like that. Well, that's a great thing. The reality is, is that there's not a whole lot of pastors like that. Um, there are a lot more pastors that sometimes mistakenly look at the church as if it is their possession. Okay? Um, with that, certainly the leaders should make it known that that is an erroneous position. That's a wrong position. That should not be done. And they can make that known without yelling, without being disrespectful, but they can definitely make it clear this is a wrong position, Pastor, to try to function like the church is yours. In Matthew 23 and verse 8, Jesus said, um, you know, one is your master, all you are brethren. It's like, you know, we, we should not try to have 
again, we, we keep forgetting the higher the position, the greater the servant. And that is the issue many a times. So the reality is, is that there needs to be a dialogue amongst them to see if they can work it out. But sometimes, what if it doesn't work out? I'm, I'm going to tell you right now. Sometimes there is a point that you say, Pastor, we've reasoned with you one-on-one. -on -one. Now we're going to probably have to get more involved. There comes a time and place that sometimes you will have to get their superiors involved. You might have to get the, con the local conference involved. You know, we, we, we can't act like sometimes it, it's called to do that. So if a pastor's belligerent, then you may have to say, okay, we're going to go ahead and get your superiors involved. Now watch this. You get the superiors involved. Again, very typical in our church. Sometimes the conference president is on the side of the pastor. And so the conference president may say, I'm in agreement with the pastor. Oh, but Mr. President, this is not according to the word of God. Well, I'm in agreement with it nevertheless. Okay, what comes after the local conference? The union. You may have to go to the union. You see, most people don't do this because they feel like, ah, this is a waste of time and nobody's going to change anyhow. Let's just do what we're going to do. But what God says is you tie my hands when you do that. God gives us a protocol to follow. When he creates church organization, he did it for a reason. Part of the reason for church organization is to hold people accountable. Hey, by the way, you know who that is? That's Ted Wilson. Remember what Ted Wilson said? He said, Seventh-day Adventist church members, hold your leaders, pastors, local churches, educators, institutions, administrators, etc. Hold them what? So we can say, according to our general conference president, we're going to hold you accountable. My point is simple. Whether Ted Wilson said it or not, that's what God has called us to do. I'm glad he said it because now we can say, hey, there's an official at the top that says the same thing. But the point is, hold the brethren accountable all the way up the chain. And once you've gone up the chain and you say, Father, I can go no further, leave it in his hands. God's a righteous judge. If he could set up kings and take kings down, he could do the same with pastors. And I'm not saying that in a way like, I wish evil upon the pastor. What I'm saying is, is when a man chooses to say, this is, yeah, well, yeah. You know, when, when, he, when he chooses to say, this is my church, I'm going to do things my way or the highway, God reasons with people. And I will say one solemn story. I know an evangelist, consider him a friend. He was preaching the truth as it is in Jesus. And he came to a church one day and preached the word. And people were blessed. But the minister did not like it. The minister did not like it. The minister uh, said something to the congregation. I don't think it was wise for him to say this, but he said it. He said, I will die before I ever let that minister come back on my pulpit. He died. And that minister got invited back and preached again at that pulpit. Listen, God is not a gangster. <laughs> I'm very serious about that. God, he's not a gangster. But sometimes we treat the gospel like it's a game and like it's some little toy we play with. And God takes his work very seriously. And there comes times where God can allow things to happen that is not good because hard hearts are hard hearts. This is God's church, yes. always has been, and it will be all the way down to the end. And what God is saying is, is that I am still controlling things here. And when man tries to control what God has set up, 
he is putting himself in the place of God, and that is a sin. And if he continues with that and thinking he's above everybody else because he got a team of guys or whoever to get his back at every step of the way, there are times, solemn as it is, that God may have to demonstrate his superior power over man and make known his will. So my hope and prayer is that through the spirit of reasoning together, some of these issues can be resolved. And it will call for us to stand, though uncomfortable, but to do it in the spirit of Christ. But if not, none of these things work. God will allow things to go on for a period of time. But eventually, he will show himself mighty on behalf of his church and make his own decision. And so what I would recommend is that from pastor to the pew, we need to remain humble before God. And remember, this is his church. And uh, not get in the way of that. But why don't we go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Brother Peter, can you bless us with a word of prayer, please? Father in heaven, Father, we thank you for this time when we could uh, build together and discuss what's the issues of our hearts. And Father, we thank you for the opportunity that through your word and the spirit of prophecy that all questions can be answered. And so Father, help us to continue to trust you and obey you. And may we be found faithful when your son comes in the clouds of glory, as we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.